0: Hi, I'm Sean Brown and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. Today, we're going to talk about something almost every company struggles with at some point in their history, translating their bold ambitions into strategies that truly improve their performance. With me today are McKinsey Senior Partners, Martin Hurt, Chris Bradley, and Sven Smit. They recently wrote a book bringing big data analytics to the world of strategy, Strategy Beyond the Hockey Stick. People, probabilities, and big moves to beat the odds. Martin is a senior partner based in our Greater China office and the global co-leader of our strategy and corporate finance practice. Sven is a senior partner based in our Amsterdam office and is the former leader of the strategy and corporate finance practice. And Chris is a senior partner and current leader in the practice based in Sydney. Gentlemen, welcome. Welcome. So my first question is, why, why this topic? Um, and why did you choose to write about it now? Sven, perhaps you could start us off. First point
1: I want to make is, you no, know, strategy is back. The times are uncertain, volatility is high, and we just see that the intensity of conversation around strategy, you know, in the context of our global force is very high. Second, this is uh, 10 years in after a round of big data on strategy, and there's just more available, and we try to figure out whether insights came out
2: We also got involved in a lot of advanced analytics, artificial intelligence topics um, around 2011, 2012. And we started asking ourselves, why is it that the field of strategy seems to be the only management faculty that seems to be reasonably immune from big data analytics? And we felt there was no real answer for this other than nobody had actually done it. So we decided to sit out and do it. And uh, we were determined to move away from the traditional recipe of strategists to go and put out a framework, use a whole list of case studies of brand name companies to prove, quote unquote, that the framework was right and working and the right way to think about strategy and um, wanted to try to use empirics to figure out what's really working and what's not working in strategy. The starting point for us was to ask ourselves, how do you actually measure success of a strategy? And we were asking ourselves, is there a common denominator that we could use to address most companies in at least one of the objectives they're pursuing. The fundamental idea was that, as many other aspects of our lives, strategy was not guesswork, but actually um, a matter of probability. And as long as you have data, you can actually understand the probabilities of success or failure on strategy as well. And with the right Uh, amount of data, meaning very large data sets in our case, 2,500 of the largest companies in the world and their complete financials plus strategies over the last 25 years, you can actually start drawing pretty sound empirical conclusions.
0: Thank you, Martin. One of the other big ideas in the book is what you call the social side of strategy. Chris, could you describe for us what that means and how it affects strategic planning?
3: Well, I really think the process is broken, and it's broken uh, for very human reasons. And, you know, we're learning more and more about how to get under the skin of those human reasons through research on bias and agency costs. So that was that was one thing. Strategy decisions are irregular, long-term decisions made under a lot of uncertainty, which is exactly the opposite of what our brain was designed to do. I mean, you think about the average person is exceptionally good at driving a car, and that's because you get to do it every day and you get instant feedback. Strategy, not so much. Even the most seasoned executives might have done, you know, at best, four or five uh, big strategy changes through their careers. That's not much practice. Uh, so the first problem is you've got people. They're biased. They have limitations. They're overconfident. They anchor. But then guess what? You add other people too. And then you're in the whole world of the social dynamics where you have even unintentional competition, you've got information asymmetry, you've got misaligned incentives. So when you put all that together, you get this kind of complex suit. The outcome is is just inertia uh, as the norm. Um, The social side of strategy is very, very good at keeping companies kind of stuck where they are. Um, And that's why we're so interested to understand it really well so that we can resolve that inertia uh, that stops them making the big moves that our evidence shows they really do need to make.
0: Sven, what kind of social dynamics do you find to be the biggest challenges?
1: Yeah, the book is called Strategy Beyond the Hockey Stick uh, because the basic process of strategy sausage making at the moment is a proposal process called strategic planning where people promise a bright future if they can get the money now. And their entire game is through promises, get sort of some sort of resource allocation. And as a result, they play every single game in the book to get what they need. The pros are big, the cons are small, the strengths are big, the weaknesses are small, the competition is absent, you're the leader. And uh, you know what do you do if somebody asks a question? Your typical answer is, that's a great question, we have the answer on page 42. Because what you really don't want is to create a discussion. I always jokingly compare it with a marriage proposal Uh, In a marriage proposal, somebody promises a bright future, but nobody actually says the real data would suggest it has about a 50% chance to last 12 years. Uh, And that's roughly how strategy proposals should be also, because they are full of probabilities. And so the social dynamic of pride, uh, standing out versus your colleagues, trying to get what you want prevents people from actually internalizing the data and the conversation. And that tension is sort of really the genesis of this book, the tension between the real data of what makes good strategy and the
0: games that are being played in the strategy room. Chris, in the book, there's a passage colorfully titled Hockey Stick Dreams and Hairy Back Realities. Can you tell us what that means and what leads to that uh, assumedly unattractive reality?
3: Yeah, well, the, the, I mean, the ugliest, but unfortunately one of the most common charts in strategy is what we call the hairy back, which is what it looks like when a, a, a bunch of hockey stick, uh, unsuccessful hockey stick, hockey stick strategies pile up on each other. And each year you see the hockey stick forecast and then the reality and then the next year's hockey stick forecast. And it looks uh, remarkably like a hairy back. Um, now, why is that? It's because of two competing different biases. The first one is overconfidence about our baseline. Um, um, so we're very bold in making our forecasts as we said before we're very assertive about why we perform the way we do even though we've got to acknowledge there's a lot of dust in that rear view mirror Um, but the second issue is timidity actually so we kind of have this boldness in our forecasting but timidity in making plans because making big bold plans is difficult you're moving a lot of people's cheese if you know what I mean Um, so uh, if you have a hockey stick that's based on a bold forecast and a timid plan, you're going to end up with a hairy back. So what we say instead is, no, 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 have, have a really clear-eyed forecast, understand your momentum case, know what the forces of work are, understand how much context shapes your performance. Um, and then, now, when you know your momentum case and you know what your aspiration is, make a plan that's well calibrated. Make a plan that's calibrated to the reality of your context and the reality of the performance you want. By highlighting the social side of strategy, what we're really saying is that it's not really about the quality of the analysis or how many pages were in the deck. It's about changing the actual frame of the conversation.
0: Can you share some examples, Chris?
3: Well, as soon as you say where to compete, uh, you're talking about movement and change. People like being good in their niche. They like, they're comfortable doing what they're doing. Um, Not only that, but resources are normally locked into status quo. Um, it, it's not hard to imagine why our research has found that the correlation between the capital budget from one year to the next is 90 percent. In other words, the people who have the capital get the capital. Um, so if strategy is about where to compete but, but the actual experience of companies is inertia that keeps them stuck where they are. that's where the social side of strategy really kicks in as being important. One little way we cast this was, think about it like a negotiation of targets. You have this fiendish trade-off, because on one hand you want to um, garner resources and appear bold and visionary and competent by having a very high target. Um, And on the other hand, the proposer uh, wants a low target, because you want achievability, you want to um, have a good scorecard at the end, you want to achieve your bonusable targets, um, and frankly, it's going to be a little bit easier. So that's the perspective from the proposers, from the person getting the strategy pitched to them. It's also fiendishly difficult because on one hand, you, you're very concerned that the proposer is sandbagging. You yourself want to make sure you're motivating the highest possible performance, but also that it's realistic.
0: Thanks. Uh, Martin, earlier you talked about this notion of frameworks versus hard data and the importance of using data in formulating successful strategies. What was the breakthrough idea in terms of applying these empirics?
2: Well, when we set out with our study, we wanted to first understand where economic profit is in the world. How is it distributed? We chose economic profit because it has a few advantages. One is it combines two factors that we know drive shareholder value. The first one being growth, here represented by invested capital and the return of invested capital. And it's also reasonably well under the control of management. The increase in economic value as evidence for the fact that the company was improving relative to other companies in the market and therefore as evidence for a good strategy. So we looked at the largest companies in the world and determined their average economic profit over a five-year period and did that over different time increments. That gave us a distribution of economic profit in the world, and we found that that distribution followed a strong power law. So it's a very uneven distribution. The top 20% of companies, the top quintile, accumulate more than 90% of the economic profit in the world. The three middle quintiles, so 60% of the companies we looked at, are hovering largely around the zero line. So the distribution has a shape of very steep bookends and then a very broad, flat middle around the zero line in terms of economic profit. And those were a few very interesting insights. Um, One was that in order to actually get into the zone of participating in substantial economic value creation, a company has to get into the top quintile. And the other one, that 60% of all companies are working incredibly hard just to keep up with the rising water level.
3: Go back a little bit further. Around 2009, 2010 we developed uh, this framework called the 10 Timeless Tests of Strategy. So instead of saying, you know, what's the best way to develop the next thing in strategy, we we asked ourselves a question we thought was relevant to more executives, which is, I'm getting bombarded with strategies. How do I tell the good ones apart from the bad? Now, the first big test of strategy is uh, test one, does your strategy beat the market? And by that, what we really mean is did you uh, generate uh, economic profit, which is really the evidence that uh, you overcame perfect markets. Because in the perfect markets, um, if you'll have a you know, perhaps scary flashback to your economics textbooks, uh, in perfect markets there is no economic profit. So the residual of market imperfections, or you know what we'll call competitive advantages, is economic profit. So that led us to, down a, a path of going, well... If that's the test of strategy, how many companies are actually winning? And we 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 started understanding the distribution of economic profit, and kind of you know stumbled into this power curve, which is the one of the central empirical concepts of the book, which shows that when you do look at economic profit, hey, actually markets work really really well, about 60% of the time in keeping economic profits remarkably close to zero in the for the middle three quintiles. So we were armed with the best thing you can have if you're trying to come up with a new idea, which is an interesting new question, which is, hey, what does it take to go from that middle three quintiles, where economic profit is basically zero, up into the top quintile, where there's massive economic profits and there's this kind of power law? And how often does it happen?
0: Did you look at how the power curve of economic profit has evolved over time? In other words, has it gotten steeper at the bookends or closer to zero in the flat middle?
2: So there's two moves we detect over time. And uh, the first one is that uh, the absolute amount of economic profit generated by these companies has increased over the 25 years that we looked at. Uh, obviously, the absolute level of economic profit achieved is slightly cycle dependent. So in a period, let's say between 2007 and 2010, um, there was a, a dip in the uh, absolute levels of economic you know, profit uh, achieved by companies around the world. But over 25 years, uh, the absolute amount has increased On the other hand, the curve has gotten steeper, so economic profit has disproportionately more accumulated to uh, very successful at-scale players, uh, and in recent years, in particular, uh, platform players.
0: You say you looked at corporate performance during different time periods. What kind of mobility did you find among the companies you studied? Did many of them manage to rise on the power curve?
2: One aspect in this context that's actually very important to consider is how hard it is to move on the power curve. Moving from the three middle quintiles to the top quintile has a less than 10% chance over a 10-year period. So one in 10 companies actually makes it. That analysis also holds true on a business unit level, meaning that typically... Of a portfolio of businesses that a company has, only one in 10 business units will move. Now, the really interesting result that later analysis delivered was that when you look at the companies that move from the middle to the top, those who truly have hockey stick performances, in these companies, typically exactly one business unit moved. It's not that they got all businesses to perform better. It's not that they peanut buttered their resources across everything and just hoped for the best. No, they concentrated their investment on one or very few businesses if they weren't 100% sure. And then in 90% of all cases, just one business really moved and that lifted the whole company.
0: Sven, the book has been out for a little while now. Can you share with our listeners some of the most surprising reactions that you've gotten from executives? We get the reaction
1: because the book has fun in it with cartoons. Surprisingly, McKinsey can be funny. Uh, The second thing is they say, we love your analytics. They are really insightful and they make a huge difference. Maybe you have found something that is kind of a benchmark approach to are your moves big enough. But they very substantially like that we actually are addressing the social game, because that's the game they live in. Even if they have the answer analytically, they need to navigate this social game all the time. And that we might have a few ideas on how to navigate
0: the social game differently really gets the eyes blinking. Last questions for Chris. What's next? Where are you going with this research?
3: I I think the next step for us is to kind of work out, all right, what is an agile company look like when it comes to strategy, in terms of fluidity of resources, in terms of pursuing shared goals, in terms of making enterprise consistent risk trade-offs. We think technology is going to be part of the solution, by the way, as with any kind of big change in, in management process. And we're developing kind of our first kind of digital platform to think about how to do strategic planning and how to bring some of these ideas together. Thanks for joining us today. A transcript
0: of this podcast will be posted on our practice page on mckinsey.com where you can also find links to related materials and previous episodes. If you'd like to receive future updates with our latest insights, follow us on Twitter at MCKStrategy, connect with us on LinkedIn by searching for McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance, or sign up for email alerts on our practice page on mckinsey.com. During our next Inside the Strategy Room podcast, We will continue our conversation with Martin, Sven, and Chris. They will share the factors that their research revealed to have the biggest impact on boosting corporate performance and how big a strategic move needs to be to help a company move up the power curve. We hope you can join us on our next podcast, Inside the Strategy Room.